Section 41 of Epics and Romances of the Middle Ages. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Epics and Romances of the Middle Ages by Wilhelm Wagner. Section 41. Part 3rd. Section 2. Chapter 3. Lohengrin or Lower Angrin. The Silver Bell Under the lead of Gawain and others, and lastly of Arthur himself, the knights of the Round Table sought in vain for that which lay so near yet seemed so far, because their dim vision could not pierce the earthly mists that cloud heaven from our view. Some said that the angels had conveyed the holy mountain farther east, where it was guarded by Prester John, and that only when wild Saracens threatened Christendom did the Templars appear with the silver dove on shield and helmet and help to win the victory. Then they vanished, and none knew whence they came or whither they went. Meanwhile, Percival and Candwiramur lived happily together, serving in the temple of the Sangreal and educating their children with the greatest care. Cardais, the eldest son, on reaching man's estate, was made ruler over his mother's kingdom of Belripar, and over his patrimony of Valais and Anjou. The younger son, Lohengrin, remained at home with his parents, while the daughter, Aribadale, took the place of Queen Ripons, and bore the Holy Grail from the altar to the hole and back again. It was long since any of the knights of the temple had been called by the sound of the silver bell to go out and fight against the unbelievers, for the Saracens had been completely conquered by the Christians. But one evening, when the knights were all assembled round the king in the royal hall, the silver bell was heard apparently at a great distance, but coming ever nearer and nearer. It sounded like a cry for help. At the same moment, the announcement appeared on the sacred vessel in letters of flame that Lohengrin was the hero chosen by God to defend the rights of the innocent, and that he should be born whither he should go in a boat drawn by a white swan with a crown upon his neck. Hail, Lohengrin, chosen of the Lord, cried the knights of the temple. Percival rejoiced greatly, and embraced and blessed his son, while Candwiramur, her heart filled with joy at Lohengrin's high calling, and also with anxiety about his safety, went to fetch the armor inlaid with gold that Amfortas had once worn, and the sword that had broken during Percival's fight with his brother Fairyfis, but which had since been reforged and tempered in the sanctuary of the Sangreal. A squire now entered the hall and announced that a boat lay in the lake below the mountain, which a swan with a golden crown was towing by a chain of gold. This was the sign that the hour of the young hero's departure was come. The king and queen and all the knights accompanied him to the shore, where the boat awaited him, 
As he was about to embark, Percival gave him a golden horn and said, Blow three times on this horn as a sign that you have arrived amongst the worldly-minded children of men, and again three times to show that you are coming home. For if you are ever asked from whence you came and of what family you are sprung, you must at once be up and away on your return to the holy mountain. This is the indestructible law of the Brotherhood of the Sangreal. Lohengrin sprang into the boat, and the swan swam away with it, bearing it towards the sea. The air was full of the softest strains of music, but whether it was the swan that sang or a choir of angels, Lohengrin could not tell. The music ceased when the boat reached the sea. Its place was taken by the howling of the storm and the sound of many waters. When night came on, the young hero stretched himself in the bottom of the boat and fell asleep, undisturbed by wind or waves. Fair Elsie, the Duchess One day the youthful Duchess of Brabant had gone out to hunt. She was of such surpassing beauty that she was always called Fair Elsie. On this occasion she had somehow got separated from her companions, and to tell the truth she was not at all sorry, for she wanted to have a little quiet time for thought. So she threw herself on the grass under a great linden tree and began to ponder over her troubles. She had many lovers and would gladly have got rid of them all, especially of the Count of Telramund, a mighty warrior and her former guardian, who persisted in maintaining that her father had promised her to him on his deathbed. The young duchess both hated and feared the Count. She had refused point-blank to marry him in spite of his threats, but he now declared that he would make war upon her and would also bring a heavy charge against her before the newly elected German king, Heinrich of Saxony. Elsie thought over all these things with a heavy heart till she fell asleep, lulled by the humming of the bees and the soft murmur of the wind in the branches of her head. And in her sleep she dreamt. It was a strange dream. She thought that a youthful hero came to her out of the wood and offering her a little silver bell, told her to ring it if she ever needed assistance, and he would come without delay. It seemed to her that she tried to take the bell but could not, and in the effort she awoke. While puzzling over the meaning of her dream, she became aware of a falcon hovering over her. It wheeled round her several times, and finally perched on her shoulder. Tied round its neck was a silver bell exactly like the one she had seen in her dream. She gently detached the bell, and the falcon flew away. Soon after she returned home, a messenger arrived to summon her before King Heinrich's judgment seat at Cologne on the Rhine. She obeyed the summons with a heart at ease, for she felt herself in the keeping of a higher power and trusted in the hope her dream held out to her. King Heinrich 
was a man who both loved and exercised justice, but the empire sorely needed stout defenders. Hordes of wild Hungarians ravaged the south every year, and Count Telramund was a mighty warrior whose assistance was of great value to him. So he hoped that his claims would be successfully proved. The trial began. Three witnesses were brought to prove that the Duchess loved one of her vassals, and for a lady in her position to marry a vassal was strictly forbidden by the laws of the realm. Two of the witnesses, however, were declared false and perjured, and the evidence of one witness was not enough. Then the Count stood up and offered to show the truth of his allegation against the Duchess by challenging to single combat any knight that the Lady Elsie might choose to defend her cause, and might God show the right. The challenge could not be refused, but three days' time were allowed her to find a champion. Elsie looked round the hall to see if any noble warrior would defend her, but all feared the terrible strength and skill of Count Telramund. No one moved. A silence as of death reigned in the court. Then the maiden remembered the silver bell. She drew it from her bosom and rang it, and the clear sound that it gave forth pealed through the silent hall and passed on in louder and louder echoes till it was lost in the distant mountains. After that she turned to the king and said that her champion should appear at the appointed time. The three days were over. The king was seated on his chair of state overlooking the lists, and thoughtfully gazed over the rushing waters of the Rhine that flowed close to where the combat was to take place. The princes and knights surrounded him, and before him stood Count Telramund in battle array, and the fair duchess, who looked lovelier than ever. Three times the Count called upon the champion who was to defend the Lady Elsie to appear. He received no answer. All eyes were fixed upon the King, anxious to hear whether he would now pronounce judgment on the accused. While he yet hesitated, distant music was heard coming over the Rhine. The sounds were passing sweet, such as none had ever heard before. A few moments later, a boat was seen approaching the shore, drawn by a white swan with a golden crown upon its neck, and in the boat a knight clad in rich armor was lying asleep. As the prow touched the land, he awoke and sounded a golden horn three times. The notes echoed across the river and were lost in the distance. This was the sign that he accepted the position of champion of innocence. He understood what was required of him, and disembarking entered the lists where his adversary was awaiting him. Before the fight began, the herald came forward and demanded the stranger's name and condition. "'My name is Lohengrin,' answered the knight, "'and I am of royal birth. More than that you need not know.' It is sufficient, replied the king. Your patent of nobility is written on your forehead. The trumpets sounded to battle, and the combat began. 
Telramund's blows fell thick and fast, and the stranger knight at first contented himself with standing on the defensive. But suddenly, changing his tactics, he attacked in his turn, and with one blow he cleft the Count's helmet and head. "'God has decided,' said the king, "'and his judgments are just. As for you, noble knight, will you accompany us on our expedition against the wild invaders and command the contingent that the fair duchess will send us from Brabant? Lohengrin joyfully accepted the proposal, and at the same moment the lady Elsie came up and thanked him for the great service he had done her. She had recognized him from the first moment of his appearance as the hero of her dream, and her heart was full of wonder and gratitude. On the journey to Brabant, Lohengrin and Elsie saw a great deal of each other, and the more they saw, the more they liked. In the castle at Antwerp, they were publicly betrothed, and a few weeks later married. When the bridal pair left the cathedral after the wedding, Lohengrin told his wife that she must never question him as to the place from whence he came or as to his parentage, for if she did, he must leave her that very hour and leave her forever. They were startled out of their honeymoon by the king's call to arms. Numerous robber hordes from Hungary had invaded the land, so King Heinrich had determined to collect his armies at Cologne and march against the foe. The Duchess, like most of the other ladies, went with her husband to the royal city. There were many great warriors amongst the princes of the empire, and the ladies used to talk of their glorious deeds and those of their ancestors. But when Elsie's husband was mentioned, a strange silence would fall upon the company, for rumors ran that Lohengrin was the son of a heathen magician, and that he had gained the victory over Count Telramund by his knowledge of the black arts. When Elsie heard the scandalous tale, she was deeply hurt, for she knew her husband's noble nature. She longed for the power of justifying him, and of making the scandal-mongers eat their words and reverence her hero. So full did she become of these thoughts, that she forgot her husband's warning, and going to him one day, told him of her trouble, and asked him whose son he was and whence he came. Dear wife, he said in quiet sorrow, I will now tell you, and the king, and all the princes, what was hidden and ought to have remained hidden forever. But remember, the hour of our parting approaches. The hero led his trembling wife before the king and his nobles, who were assembled on the banks of the Rhine. He told them of his great father Percival, and of his own coming to Cologne in obedience to the divine order conveyed to him by the Holy Grail. I would fain have fought the barbarians with you, noble king, he continued, but destiny calls me hence. Be of good cheer. You will conquer the robbers, rule over the heathen, and win imperishable glory. The hero spoke with the enthusiasm of an inspired seer, 
as he added a prophecy of the wonders time should unfold regarding the future of the empire. When he ceased, all present heard the same strange wild melody that had attended his coming, but this time sad and slow as a dirge. It came nigher, and then they spied also the crowned swan and the boat. Farewell, beloved, said Lohengrin, clasping his weeping wife in his arms. I had grown to love you and the life in this world of yours passing well, but now a higher will than mine tells me to go. He tore himself away with tears in his eyes, and entering the boat which the swan had brought close to the bank, was borne away from their sight. She did not long survive the parting from her husband, and when she died, she died in the firm conviction that she was about to join her husband and see the Holy Grail. Whether she was right or wrong, none of those about her could ever agree. End of section 41